Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Today, I am joined by Professor Angela Schottenhammer, Professor of the Chinese Middle Period and Early Modern Global History in the Faculty of Arts at KU Leuven, Belgium. Professor Schottenhammer is also the founding director of the Crossroads Research Center and in cooperation with Shanghai University, the founding director of the Institute for the History of Economic Interactions. Professor Schottenhammer is the author and editor of several important publications, including most recently, a two volume publication in the Palgrave series in Indian Ocean World Studies entitled Early Global Interconnectivity Across the Indian Ocean World. She is also a partner of the Indian Ocean World Center's Appraising Risk Project and the principal investigator of several other projects, including a European Research Council funded project entitled The Structure and Impact of Trans-Pacific Trade, 16th to 18th Centuries, The Mineral Galleon Trade Beyond Silver and Silks. In addition to a Goethe Henkel Foundation funded project entitled Seafaring, Trade and Knowledge Transfer. Today, Professor Schottenhammer is going to discuss some of the work she and her team have been conducting for the IWC's Appraising Risk Project. Angela, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Philip. Um, firstly, can you just give an overview of research, an overview of your research? Uh, what have you been investigating? Uh, and where has this taken you in terms of thematic direction? Okay. I would uh, just um, like to um, give you a brief summary of our activities uh, that actually have taken us from storms and typhoons via ocean currents and diseases up to the uh, problem of piracy in the uh, East Asian waters. And most recently we have, or especially me, I have particularly concentrated on the question of yeah, the transfer of diseases and medicinal knowledge and uh, the dissemination of um, medicinal drugs. So um, let me first start um, maybe with two examples uh, that um, refer to problems of storms and typhoons that crews, of course, met when um, traveling uh, the seas. Shipwrecks, of course, um, attest to typhoon disasters and maritime archaeology, I have to add, is also one of uh, yeah, the major focuses uh, that um, we are investigating within these various projects. One of the most prominent examples is perhaps the attempted invasion of Japan by the Mongol ruler of China, Kublai Khan. Twice he tried to invade Japan in 1274 and in 1281. Both times the Mongol fleet encountered intense tropical cyclones or hurricanes, which the Japanese called Kamikaze. This is literally meaning yeah, um, divine winds because Japan was um, in the end just saved from being invaded by the Mongol troops. In fall 
1274, about 200 warships sank off the coast of Hakata, this is in southwest Japan, Kyushu, and approximately 13,500 people drowned. Similarly, in summer 1281, the Mongol fleet met with a typhoon and sank off Takashima Island. Approximately 100,000 people died in that disaster. One of my team members, Dr. Kimura Jun from um, to Tokai University in Japan, he has been involved in the recovery of the sunken fleet of Kublai Khan in cooperation with a team of maritime archaeologists and the Japanese government. And if you uh, Google just um, the lost fleet of Kublai Khan, you will definitely find some other podcasts and also video documentations on uh, this uh, event. So this was really something quite new that archaeologists, maritime archaeologists, finally just discovered relics of this sunken fleet. Now, climate historians have now found out that both years, 1274 and 1281, were so-called El Nino years, when sea surface temperatures in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean rose above average, causing, for example, a reversal or redirection of the regular east-west winds so that the chances that typhoons rather hit Northeast Asia, Japan, than South China increased. This is also quite interesting because this is something people didn't know in the past. Let me um, provide you uh, with another example. This stems um, from um, the Spanish um, Manila and Galleon trade. The Spanish, as, it's, as is known, initiated um, a trans-Pacific galleon uh, trade between Acapulco and Manila that was officially operating between 1565 and 1815. Here we have an incident that occurred roughly 300 years later than the attempted invasion of uh, Japan by Kublai Khan. This is the incident of a galleon called San Felipe from 1596. And it happened during a dangerous passage through some islands uh, southeast of Japan. This galleon, San Felipe, had left the Manila Bay on July 11, 1596, with lots of cargo and valuables. On July 28, the galleon eventually disembarked from the Philippine island archipelago. So you can already see that uh, they have been traveling in the seas of the uh, Philippine archipelago already for half a month, more or less. Due to contrary winds, navigation remained difficult. And on coming closer to the water southeast of Japan, the crew met with various strong hurricanes. I just briefly quote from a diary, just a sentence here. In a passage at the tip of Japan on the 28th of September, so about two months later, 
the weather started to become threatening. And within a very small period of time, a very strong hurricane came up with fateful winds so that within just four hours, we were about to lose ourselves. In October 1596, eventually, the San Felipe wrecked in Urado on the coast of the Japanese island of Shikoku. This is the main uh, Japanese island en route from Manila to Acapulco. The galleon had been carrying a cargo that valued more than 1.5 million pesos. Crew and passengers could disembark safely and obviously from the Japanese side, there were originally no plans to confiscate the galleon or its cargo. After, however, the chief pilot of the San Felipe, the Spanish chief pilot, showed the Japanese a world map with all these Spanish possessions and then incautiously told them, obviously in order to intimidate them, that it was Spanish tactics to first infiltrate missionaries in foreign countries in order to pacify the people and then conquer the countries with their military. The ruler of Japan, Hideyoshi, was of course upset and decided to confiscate the galleon. And here we have a nice um, diary of all that was happening. So we know about this. And um, also here we have some archeological reliques. This incident of the San Felipe also briefly yeah, refers to another problem that the ships encountered when sailing here, this region of um, the East Asian waters, namely ocean currents. I only want to provide a very brief example. This is um, the so-called black current or kuroshio in Japanese. And this is a very strong ocean current that is passing east of Taiwan, the Ryukyu Islands and Japan, flowing to the Northeast into the direction of the Aleut Islands, further on to Alaska, and then to the west coast of North America. And in combination with strong westerly and northwesterly winds, of course, these currents have definitely posed a major threat also for seafarers navigating uh, these waters. And the Spanish actually have for a very long time trying to find an ideal way to get back from Manila, from Southeast Asia, back to America until they really discovered how to use this ocean current. We also have maps that attest to the fact that the currents are very, very strong and that um, fishermen, for example, should be very careful and never dare to move beyond yeah, these ocean currents. Let me now come to my major topic, the question of yeah, diseases, medicines, medicinal knowledge, and yeah, medicinal drugs. What did the crew do if, for example, somebody got sick on board, or if they needed a physician, a surgeon? I have to, um, to add that uh, here I 
will only just um, basically go into Spanish documents. But of course, we have documents uh, from basically all the uh, seafaring uh, nations uh, that um, just um, crossed uh, the uh, oceans. And definitely crossing the Pacific was even more yeah, difficult and more dangerous than crossing the uh, Indian Ocean. The role of ship surgeons in Spanish documents, it's called cirujano, evolved originally from barbers, especially from the English documents. We have lots of uh, yeah, uh, descriptions about what um, barbers are doing. What we know about ship surgeons stems mainly from travel diaries, manuscripts recording cargo or personal belongings or other official documents related to transoceanic travels. But we do interesting, interestingly also have some archeological evidence like travel or doctor kits. So let me give you a few examples. In 1586, one of the Spanish Manila galleons called San Martin carried a cargo for almost 200 different persons. When um, the galleon San Martin left Manila, it obviously made a detour in order to trade with the Chinese at Macau and load there a large quantity of Chinese goods. This, of course, does not only yeah, attest to the fact that um, there was lots of contraband trade and smuggling, because officially it was not um, allowed to take all these Chinese um, commodities on board, but it also attests to the fact that um, most of these galleons um, were um, loaden with such a big quantity of cargo that it really posed a big problem to their stability on water. They were too heavy. And we have so many yeah, um, records and documents that really speak about overloading of these galleons and um, also of leaving the harbor too late. We have seen the other galleon left in July 11. This was already quite late when they made a detour and then it took them maybe another month to get a cargo in Macau. And then they were already at the beginning of August. So the chances of running into a typhoon increased tremendously. And this was a big, big problem. The San Martin, to come back to our um, question of uh, surgeons, also had a sh ship surgeon, a Barbero Isirujano, on board. His name was Agustin Sanchez. Basically, nothing is known about his person. But we possess an interesting document with a very long list of goods he carried on board. Part of Sanchez's belongings was, I enumerate here from the manuscript, a small box with its key filled with cup-shaped containers used for mixing substances such as herbs or medicines, some letters, some so-called Sangle cases. Sangle, this is the uh, European designation of the uh, Chinese um, in uh, the uh, Philippines. 
it's um, believed to be derived from the Chinese term Changlai or those who come frequently. Then um, some wine, vino de la tierra, a pot, probably a large ceramics jar of Chinese spirits, una tinaca de vino de China. And of course, he also carried yeah, medicinal things uh, on board. Interestingly, also six forceps for the extraction of back teeth, barber equipment, including mirrors. And um, the irons or equipment forceps to pull back teeth, I have discovered this so frequently um, in other manuscripts as well, that I was thinking about maybe toothache or something like this really must have been a major problem because it's really mentioned so frequently in all these um, manuscripts. Also, another sh ship surgeon who was active uh, around 1600, he also carried among his belongings a bag with five iron tools to pull back teeth, a cautery, a small bronze minaret with an iron handle and a small grinding stone. So also from these kind of yeah, descriptions, including archeological reliques that we find on shipwrecks, we can get yeah, some insights into what uh, these ship surgeons were using um, on board. From an English barber and surgeon who had some experience as a surgeon in the army early in his career, we possess an illustrated manual called the Surgeon's Mate. And um, this manual by the ship uh, surgeon called John Woodall, who later joined the um, British East India Company, had become then um, quite popular and crews just used it on board of ships. Another wreck that sank in 1600, the so-called San Diego also had some surgeon, surgeon's instruments on board. So this is how we somehow can try to reconstruct um, what um, ship surgeons were using on board. Let me just briefly come back to the Spanish uh, surgeon, Agustin Sanchez, because he interesting also carried various books placed in a box with keys on board. In total, 19 old books about surgery and handwritten notes. Handwritten notes, this tells us that he was also making notes when he was curing some patients or doing something on board of ships. Other sources now show us that one was apparently also well aware that distancing was quite important on board and that the little space available was quite conducive to the spread of diseases. I have investigated a Chinese document that talks in detail about these problems. Also that for uh, yeah, economic reasons, now people try to save money and build the ship smaller. And this uh, just is very conducive to the spread of diseases on board of ships. We have examples when in emergency situations, people were asked to proceed 
on deck to breath fresh air and leave more room for those who have to remain yeah, in the hull, in the ship, to breath fresh air and distancing. These are all problems we are only too familiar with now during the uh, actual COVID situation. To summarize, through such sources, we have tried to piece together and reconstruct what happened on board in certain emergency situations, how at least basic medical care was secured, which books and medicinal tools as well as medicinal drugs were carried on board. And we investigate the networks of medicinal drugs and medicinal knowledge across oceans. Let me conclude, if I still have the time, with one concrete example. I would like um, to introduce camphor. What we know as camphor, as a rule, refers to an oleoraisin, also called camphor oil. It is an essential oil obtained by distillation of crushed parts of camphor wood and bark or by directly gaining the raisin, cutting the tree. Historical use and distribution of camphor are complex, as different names were circulating, referring to partly different plants. The greatest confusion probably arises from the fact that camphor as a chemical composition is contained in various different plants but I won't go uh, here into uh, details. Camphor acts antimicrobial and works, for example, against certain fungi and bacilli. Internally administered, it is a pulmonary antiseptic, a febrifuge, an analgesic and stimulant of the central nervous system. It may be applied against asthma, for example. Externally applied, it works as rubefacient and ointment against muscle pain, antiseptic and anti-rheumatic. Still today, some ointments against osteoarthritis or muscle, muscle relaxation contain camphor. Camphor is easily absorbed through the skin and also can be administered by injection, inhalation and ingestion. For example, the famous tiger balm, and I'm pretty sure not only the China historians and sinologists among us have heard about tiger balm, contains a significant percentage of camphor. So it may wonder little that camphor was part of most pharmacies and due to its wide range of possible applications, also valued on board of ships. And we have here one concrete uh, example also. This is a book that also the Spanish uh, surgeon Agustin Sanchez uh, carried on board. I think if I recall correctly, even two examples, um, two copies of this book. Um, this is called um, Chirurgia Universal, Universal Surgery by a certain Juan Fragoso, who uh, lived um, in the 16th century, 1530 to 1597. He was a physician and botanist from Toledo and also the surgeon of Philip II. 
And he also introduces Kampfer and all the yeah, details and applications for what it can be used. And this book was one of the yeah, major handbooks that at least Spanish surgeons had on board for consultation. There is no time to provide other examples, but we um, could introduce uh, various other medicinal drugs that were used not only in the pharmacies of that time, but we know uh, from manuscripts that they have also been carried on board of ships from lists of inventories um, and the like, and that they have also been applied uh, just when uh, young people got sick or needed maybe some other surgery or some, some medicinal help, for example, after a war, a naval war, or after a pirate attack. So I would like to conclude um, here, and I think we can then, if there are still questions, just um, open a discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Schottenhammer. Uh, yeah, I have a. I think I have two questions. One for each part of your presentation, essentially. So I think I'll ask them in the same order that you discussed them in your presentation. Um, I suppose my first question refers to shipwrecks and the risk of being shipwrecked. How common were shipwrecks, um, and how did sailors mitigate the chances of being wrecked? How did they try to avoid typhoons? How did they try to avoid being lost <clears throat> on unknown currents? Um, you mentioned, it seems in some instances, that they went against patterns that would have helped them mitigate risk, for example, by leaving too late in the season, <clears throat> increasing the chance of hitting typhoons, and also by being <clears throat> too heavy and overloaded. Um, so again, there are the strategies that they employ to try and avoid being wrecked. Yeah, this is a very interesting question because actually when you study these documents, you uh, will find that they actually thought this is a calculable risk. And most ships, really most ships didn't leave uh, early enough. And most ships were actually overloaded. So even though people knew about the risk, they still thought that they somehow might be, maybe they could calculate uh, the, the risk. We have only really probably very few examples that ships were not overloaded and that they left in time. Of course, then in the end, the Spanish um, crown, for example, was looking for culprits. And we have yeah, um, huge piles of documents discussing who actually was responsible for that. Was it the local governor who didn't take care that the ship left in time or some local merchants who wanted to load on more cargo or was it a pilot error? Of course, sometimes also on the um, missing experience of a pilot of the captain or so, this also led to shipwreck. But I would guess that in the majority of cases, actually people just calculated the risk and thought somehow Maybe we are lucky and we can escape it. Uh, that's very interesting. Does religion play a big role here? Yes, of course. Then also we see this also on the Chinese uh, side uh, that um, they, of course, were praying uh, a lot uh, then and um, hoped uh, that nothing uh, would happen. 
but especially yet now concerning the Manila Gallian trait, I think we see very frequently that they just calculated the risk because obviously, very obviously, the money, the profit you could make with that was just too big in order just to yeah, not somehow calculate that uh, you might get a chance uh, not to wreck in these uh, waters. So you're kind of balancing like an economic versus an environmental risk, exactly. which I think is exactly. very, very pertinent in the current pandemic circumstances, what you're doing, how locked down yeah. we should exactly be. Um, all right, wonderful. thank you very much for that answer. My other question um, relates to medicinal practice and exchanges of knowledges. Um, how were ship surgeons' practices uh, and knowledges um, affected by encounters in the Indian Ocean world or specifically uh, in um, the Philippines or in China, which you've mostly discussed here. You mentioned um, a Chinese document which um, recommended distancing in times of outbreaks of disease. Um, you also mentioned, um, gave us a lot of on comfort. Um, essentially, how did um, Spanish surgeons, for example, gain knowledge of these um, practices? Were they practices that they already knew about? Um, or did they learn them from, I suppose, specialists in the Indian Ocean world itself? Yeah, of course, this was a kind of, in terms of Spanish uh, surgeons, this was a Spanish, of course, tradition. Sometimes um, if you study um, these documents, uh, you will be surprised that there seems to be a relatively little exchange among the European uh, yeah, scientists uh, of the time. Of course, it was also a question of um, competition at that time. But uh, on the other hand, of course, they were also learning. And uh, in terms of um, Spanish surgeons, for example, you have the missionaries also that were studying, of course, also local traditions, local uh, medicinal drugs, uh, local practices. And then, of course, uh, also carried their knowledge to um, their countrymen. We have the same thing in the Indian Ocean. I think um, especially um, Indian Ocean companies like the Dutch or the British um, East India companies, they uh, finally even hired specific uh, uh, surgeons or botanists or skilled um, personnel in order to study yeah, the local um, flora and fauna and uh, in order to get a better knowledge of the local conditions we have lots of yeah, famous physicians if you only think of uh, Philip Franz von Siebold and then the um, yeah the Dutch uh, East India Company and uh, Philip Franz von Siebold went to Japan but we have many many other examples especially when uh, surgeons botanists were really sent to India in order to study the uh, local uh, yeah, uh, flora there and then learn from it to compose manuals and uh, then um, they uh, were distributed and of course also the, the people learned from um, the surgeons and physicians also learned from uh, what uh, the um, local people um, did because for the Europeans it was quite a different environment and they had for example to adjust to the uh, um, tropical climate 
to new diseases that they were not used to. So um, if we look in detail, we find lots of uh, really yeah, interchange and exchange. Okay, so building on that, do we have exchange of knowledge going the opposite direction as well? Chinese physicians, for example, learning ostensibly European methods too. I suppose, is this a real formation of, uh, quote, hybrid knowledges here? Less, but we also do have uh, examples uh, of this. A well-known example um, that uh, Qing Emperor, the Kangxi uh, Emperor, um, he has been um, infected or he um, got sick by malaria and he was um, treated uh, then by missionaries and he was then um, also recommending uh, this kind of uh, yeah, medicines also um, among his court uh, members. And in general, he was welcoming uh, just um, missionaries um, and Jesuit knowledge um, in order to assist um, his own court people and uh, the Chinese. So we also have the other way around, um, of course. Even though the examples, what we find in the sources are not so uh, frequent as the other way around, but we do have it. It's just a kind of a puzzle and we have to put together some more examples. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Professor Schottenhammer, uh, for your time and for discussing your research and for answering my questions. Um, I should also say thank you to Dr. Archisman Chowdhury and to Rene Mandeville, who have been working behind the scenes to turn this recording into a podcast. Uh, and thank you to you, the listener, for downloading. Um, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.